Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. Today I'm joined by one of my favorite thinkers and writers and creators, Benita Roy. I really recommend her pop-up school. And today we're going to talk about quite a few things, but we will use the recent exchanges between Dave Snowden, the critiques he's made of the meta-modern community and stage theory, these exchanges that have been taking place as a starting point for a whole conversation around how does Bonita view the self? What critiques does she hold of stage theory and why? What kinds of minds have we tended to privilege in modernity in this modern world and why might we have reached the end game of those types of minds and what kind of mind is Bonnie proposing that we begin to cultivate and what kind of wisdom might that bring forth and she'll also have a really nice contrarian perspective on why or how we should engage with chat GPT which is really worth checking out so it's just Benita, somebody you'll hear in this interview who really stretches my thinking and expands my sense of what's possible around development and coaching. So I just love immersing myself with her work. Just a few more words about Benita. She is the founder of C Labs, which is an online learning lab designed for post formal workers. She is also the founder of Aldalore, which is an insight center, a transformative education center. And as I mentioned, she's running the pop-up school, which uh, you can find online. So please, if you feel inspired to share this podcast, I love getting the word out about it. If you feel like you want to join our ever-growing community of transformational coaches, then you can head to coachesrising.com and put your name in the sign-up box on the home page there. And with all that being said, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Benita Roy. All right, Bonnie. So really good to be with you again. I really enjoy our interactions. And, you know, I feel like I'm entering into this one um, adequately stirred up, but also unprepared. <laughs> so, you know, we've got like nearly a couple of hours together and, um, uh, you know, I think we just want to pick up where we were just tuning into before we hit the record button. You know, yeah. one of the things I think we wanted, I wanted to talk to you about was the, you know, like we need another another voice in this whole uh, debate or, you know, in exchange that's occurring between, you know, Dave Snowden, Nora Bateson, and then, um, you know, uh, Brendan, we've seen, and metamodernists. And, and the developmental uh, you know, stage theorists, yeah. The developmental stage theorists. I, I, this podcast has been uh, a vehicle for that too. We had Dave on it where, you know, he shared his criticisms and we had Bill Torbett on where he was responding to Dave's criticisms and anyway, I think that's a starting point for our conversation because I think it it kind of what I'm most interested in is like where does that point us in terms of you know who we conceive of ourselves to be in this world, you know? So um I've got loads of questions around that. And you know, I just want to say to everyone listening, it's like intellectually stretches me all this stuff. So, you know, apologies up front if that you know, I get to the edges of my thinking in this conversation, but I like that too. How, first of all, how are you, Bonnie? I'm great. I've got a lot of spring energy. The birds have been singing before dawn, which means we'll have an early spring. Uh, we have been gotten a lot of snow, but um, it's that wet snow that you get in, in spring. So yeah, I'm feeling great and excited for this conversation. You always ask the best questions. <laughs> well, pressure there. 
Well, I just love that you bring nature in, you know, actually already in what you're naming. I think that's probably going to be a big part of our conversation. So we were just talking about, um, you know, in a way, uh, yeah, Dave Snowden was on the Stoa. I haven't watched that yet, you know, but I've, I've seen all the responses to that. And um, yeah, you know, it touched a lot of people. And, um, you know, I've, I've also experienced Dave as he, he kind of has a certain way about him. And, and I think he's pointing some really brilliant things and perhaps also perhaps m- misrepresents certain things. But anyway, Dave then went into conversation with Brendan and, um, Brendan, yeah, you were saying, Graham Dempsey, yeah, yeah. Brendan Graham Dempsey. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, and you were just sharing a few things about what you thought you saw happening there. Could you? Yeah, yeah. I, I I just want to make one point that was rather salient that sums up for me what was going on there, and that is um, it's it's most obvious at the end where Brendan starts asking Dave a series of questions like um, you know what what really matters to you, Dave, and then Dave talks about I don't remember what he says, but something like. Um, you know, the mountains around here and hiking and he, and he tells his story. Dave is a big storyteller, you know, so he tells a story. And then Brendan's very patient. He listens all the way through. And then he asks another question. They're probing question. He's like, but at the end of the day, like, what do you, what do you really care about? And then Dave listens and then he tells another story. And then I think it happens three or four times. And what's happening? I mean, Brendan was very, gracious and patient. But what was happening is Brendan was trying to elicit more of Dave's interior, like more depth. Brendan assumed that there was a a deeper interiority that Dave was hiding or, you know, or glossing over. And so Brendan was trying to make friends, develop a relationship so that he could cut through the persona or the facade and have Dave expose this depth dimension. Now, first, I want to say that the word depth is already problematic because it predisposes us to say, if you don't have that kind of interior life, then you're shallow. And so I do not want, because I use the word depth dimension, to imply that Dave is shallow. Okay, but within the rhetorics of postmodernism, that's what they assume that if you have this deep, traumatic, uh, examined life that you've overturned yourself a million times and opposed yourself with other selves and all this stuff, then you're shallow. The assumption is that there's further and further dimensions of the self that constitute a deep interior life. Okay, so this is the operating system that Brendan has. He's being a good guy. He really wants to connect with Dave at this level. But this level, which I'm going to argue is a postmodern construct, does not exist in the interior life of Dave. And this is not to say he's shallow. I'm not buying into that paradigm. So I'm not saying that Dave is very worldly. He's very wise in a certain way. And so this is what I see was the complete disconnect because Dave would say, well, you asked me a question, I'm answering it. And it was like, what are you looking for? Like you're looking for something that 
I'm trying to be as transparent as I can. And I think part of Dave's performance, the performativity, you know, the old codger, he's, part of his performativity is a transparency. You know, he's like, hey, this is who I am. You know, I'm not going to sit in the back of my mind and pretend I'm not a cranky old fart. He just like, this is how my mind works. This is the transparency that it gives you. And it, of course, it gets a character caricatured a little. But I think that's what Brendan misses is like that kind of performance out, out in front is a kind of transparency. It, and, and so this is to me like, like, whereas Brendan would see it as a kind of veil or persona that is hiding some depth dimension that's actually troubled by things that Dave is not letting us know. And so there's a complete disconnect. I've seen this many times. It can be a generational thing, um, but it certainly is, uh, you know, the deep interiority um, is a product of postmodernism and, and it's primarily, it's a, it's like, when Buddhism in the West meted, met with postmodernism in the West, uh, this, this type of, uh, this type of, uh, interiority, uh, was born. Could you say why this difference is important in terms of um, you know, in terms of uh, the actual conversation that was taking place, you know, around, um, you know, metamodernism and the critiques of that. And, and um, also in terms of perhaps, you know, this trans, well, where we find ourselves in this whole discourse of what, what is it to be human in the world and develop and grow and ed- be educated? You know, what, what, who do we perceive ourselves to be? And just to sort of hold that question, you know, it's like I've heard Dave say, say yeah, you know, if, if if you kind of uh, reduce or you if you just separate out somebody as an individual separate from the world and then you're just working on your own inner development, you know, that's decontextualized and uh, simplified, overly simplified. And maybe someone might say, you know, indulgent, you know, like what what's the context for this kind of endless searching inside um uh, and then but then i don't know i'm and i'm characterizing these people in these camps kind of very badly but you know people other people might say no but there's all this action taking place in the world and uh you know people aren't reflecting on the action there's not there's not a wisdom in the action you know and that that action is perhaps leading us to you know to to destruction in some way and then you know the the other side dave's like well a lot of our education is taking place through our actions in the world and it doesn't need to be made conscious and reflective. So, uh, yeah, I've just smushed all that together and I'll just see where it yeah, takes you, you know, smush. <laughs> there's a lot in there. Like, I'm just like Frankenstein. My like, you see, this is what you did by saying I ask great questions. You see, now I'm like, I'm Frankensteining my questions together. Um, okay. So, the one of the intellectual tasks about this is like you called it a smush and we have to separate the different discourse domains which is why people get confused so that that just put that as a placeholder so let's talk about uh why uh i would say um dave and other people including myself 
to some degree or another, would problematize the postmodern focus on interiority. Okay. Um, so we'll zoom out and then maybe we can reconstruct it um, after you ask good questions. When I'm working on my interior, however any audience wants to understand that, I mean, obviously there's many different types and this is what I'm saying we'll have to get into different domains of discourse. So the purpose is, uh, I want to use this word evaluative reasoning. I'm, 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 I'm positively and negatively valencing things, right? This is the purpose. This is better than that. This is worse than that. When I'm working on my interior, I'm, I have a value schema, right? If it's human development or human potential. Um, and so my question would be, what is the reference of your valuation? What is it referenced to? So every measure, you know, there's an implicit measuring going on, evaluative thing. And what is the measuring stick? Well, it can't be the self. So what is How it? How come? Because so, it's so, the thing you're measuring. You can't measure the measuring yeah. stick with a measuring stick. Right. It has no reference. It's recursive. Internal work is recursive. There is no reference for it to evaluate it. You can evaluate it with a mental model, but that's still internal phenomenon. So it's inherently suspect. It's not a practice. It can't be a practice. There's no, there's no outside to evaluate it. Could, could um, you give an example of this? Like, uh, you know, maybe like in a way, like some, some kind of recursive uh, selfing, you know, development, interior development that someone might do, you know, like, for example, you know, you think like, what, like, what's my purpose or, how, how, how do I, who am I and how do I need to develop? What, what kinds of, yeah, let's inquiries are you talking about? Let's say I do an inquiry and I find my true purpose. Why, what's the, what's the, what, what is the way that I know this is more true than another thing that's true? I don't know. I've just done some internal work, but there's no, it's a recursive. It's a loopy loop thing. Do you see what I'm saying? There's no, mm-hmm. So I might say, oh, this is my true purpose. I'm going to go and do something about it. Oh, I don't really like that. There's an evaluative loop. But what usually happens as it gets very loopy is then you find your true purpose and then you start explicating a theory of your true purpose and how does purpose work inside the psyche. And it just goes around and around and it self-confirms and complexifies. But it doesn't have a... It doesn't have a means by which to evaluate itself other than its own, its own coherency. Now, the thing is, like, these guys are really smart, so they can create huge, huge systems that create the thing that they can make the whole thing very complex and very coherent because they're very smart, conceptually very smart. But that doesn't mean that they have validated their interior because there's no way to validate it it's like having a fantasy that unicorns work this is more mental and then and then i can explain why unicorns have to be actually exist and i could go on and on and on but 
I got to go out in the world and find a unicorn or find the, the, the evidence that I say would be there, you know? So as long, as long as it just loops inside your own internal system, there's no validity to it. There's no, it, you can't evaluate it. But the problem is all the systems, all the models are evaluative models. This is better than that. And this is better than that. And this is better than that. And you say, why? And they'll just give you the theory. They won't show why and in fact people like nora and dave will show you these people score really high and they're not doing anything good in the world and this is true because it's not a growth to goodness model as zach stein would say so as soon as you go out to validate something it doesn't validate anything you know it validates okay this person scored higher complexity this person scored this way in their interior and then you can show that that's how they are, but you can't evaluate it as better or worse because it's just locked into its own circular reasoning. It's like what I call a Spinozan argument. Spinoza, you know, when you take first take philosophy and logic, you learn to set your premises. Well, the conclusions are already in the premises and then you define all the axioms and then you get a QED, hence, blah, 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 but it's a Spinozian argument. It's a very well uh, designed thing where the conclusion's already in the premises. So th these kinds of intellectual loopy loops are very well known. They're very, they've been debunked since analytic philosophy tried to, to place rigorous argument on some kind of foundation that could validate it, right? So not even math is like that. So, so, um, so, but the easy way to understand it is that it is a process purported to evaluate. Some things are better than others, but it only evaluates itself by its own coherent theory. And so, yeah, so let me, I'm going to interrupt every now and then just because I got, so then, because I want to talk about then how might we uh, begin to see uh, how we could orient in the world, you know, things like education. Uh, you know, this podcast, a lot of coaches listen. So I'm interested in, yeah, how, what, what kind of, how are coaches buying into this, you know, applying simplistic prescriptive models of how people, evaluative models of how people should be. But then let me ask this. So, you know, some people might say, yeah, but we, we went out into the world and we like tested these leaders leading successful companies and uh you know they tested kind of uh, highly in these models they were mature leaders and therefore we can you know just kind of discern that uh the, the, yeah if you're of a higher maturity then you can you can lead more effectively more systemically are, you, are we saying that that's all kind of that premise is all basically based on you know it's dodgy basically it's well, yeah. the 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 context I like to talk about it is, and I I went through this years ago. All my friends were developmental stage theorists, and I would fight with them and fight with them. And finally, I realized I'm not a developmental stage theorist. So I exited that a long time, but I spent a long time in that domain. So um, I was at a symposium once with a bunch of integral theorists, and Roy Bashka was there with his group representing the critical realists. And Roy, what I learned from Roy, uh, 
it was interesting. I always went out to dinner with the critical realists, and I and I said, "How come I always end up with you guys?" And Roy said, "Because you're a critical realist." So, um, but because um, those guys know how to party the best, that's why. Oh yeah, they they drink really good <laughs> wine. <laughs> but anyways, so uh, so what Roy Bashkar explained was that it's called the in, in, epistemic fallacy. Or it could be called the empirical fallacy. I think it's used both ways. So he talked about the empirical fallacy, and that is I could go to an Indian reservation and have a valid instrument to see if they're more abusive, uh, less intelligent, more psychotic, more mental disorders. And then I could go and take similar, you know, tests to a neighboring white community and then i would prove that the white community is more advanced in some measurements than the native americans but everyone of course understands that this is a fallacy because of the social conditions it's not a it's not a fair um it's not a fair comparison so um um and he accused the various developmental stage theorists and a lot of Wilbur's taxonomies, evaluative taxonomies, what is better? Evaluative just means you put it on a scale of, you know, better, uh, good to better. And he accused it of being a, a, a taxonomy that had, it was an empirical fallacy. So the question is, what is the condition? What is the larger context in which Developmental stage theory seems to be true, but the 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 um, challenge here is to expose the context in which it is false. So we notice, for example, that developmental stage theory seems to be very true in organizations. It's it's quite powerful in organizations. However, I would argue that develop people. You see this pattern, a way people grow, because the pipeline in modern capitalist system, the pipeline for growth is an organizational model. And so that's why people grow in those dimensions. It's the pipeline that is mm -hmm. offered. So for example, the ability to collaborate is quite high in this ladder. Right? I don't, I don't know, Keegan stage, whatever. Mm. So it's, it's, it's the deliberate uh, lower hand. The ability to collaborate is quite high in this letter. But research shows that children under the age of six are better collaborators until they go to school. Then when you go to school, you sit in a desk, you, you are taught that there's only one, there's only one answer, right answer to a question. And if I help someone answer it, that's, that's cheating. So then we systematically make people less collaborative. So in order to become collaborative, you have to be at a high developmental stage because you have to be able to deconstruct your conditioning in order to understand how to be collaborative. So it will show up under these conditions of modern education and industrial training as a higher or latent capacity. 
And then it will look at, let's say, um, intact rural communities or indigenous communities or farm communities. And they'll, you'll see collaboration at all scale, but it can't measure that kind of collaboration. And it will only measure those action logics at a lower developmental level because it's not in the pipeline in which their theory is robust. It's outside of it. So that's why it can, on the one hand, seem so useful in organizations, and on the other hand, be completely debunked and correctly debunked outside of that context. So my problem with developmental stage theory is that, well, there's a question you have to get out of it. Do we want our future to be organized the way typical organizations are organized? Or do are there people who are moving, are not in, they're not in that developmental stage because they're not, they've been deviant. They don't like school. They're not that conditioned. Well, they will not, you will not be able to see them because they will score as deviant or or autistic or I mean, or something wrong. And so my, my problem with developmental stage theory is um, that it can't see emergent stages, truly evolutionary beings. And this gets us, of course, into the uh, post formal actors, which we talked about before. Um, and so, and so that's really what the what the, the the what what Bashkar called when the philosopher underlabors for the science, they expose the context in which the, that theory, even though it's empirically valid, is constrained by a partial context. Mm -hmm. And does that make sense? Like so, that's yeah. that's the debunking of of that's the both sides of developmental stage theory, why it seems so real and why, in fact, it's extremely partial. And the question is, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a question that can't be answered by developmental stage theory. And that is, where does it lead us to? What, it make, what does it make us blind to? And so are those costs greater than the benefit? Um, basically, if you think of it as a tool and not a theory of everything. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense to me, and it's helpful. And so I wonder then if, I guess this might get onto a question of um, education. We're kind of tapping into that and um, how we see what the self is and the va value of it's, again it's like i think the thing that i'm smushing all this stuff together is because it actually is all this like this coherence out of which it's all emerging and so yeah I, like I, I guess what the question i have is like is there a value you know you've said these the postmodern folk are like doing all this inner inquiry and you can and it can be endless like it, is there a value in that approach does that um lead one to to develop you know or you know if we're talking about education do we want to do we want to kind of you know 
in this time between worlds, is it time for a big assessment, you know, of like, yeah, you know, do we want to continue that kind of corporate uh, capitalist kind of uh, path towards development, you know, that this is the kind of people that it creates? Or do we want to um, start conceiving of a different type of education uh so yeah like i guess that's yeah just see where you take take that basically i, I guess i'm wondering like do we want to throw stage theory out you know is it just too problematic do we want to we want to say no people do develop but the the stage like notion of them is just way too simplistic um or is it you know i've even seen you write about how yeah this kind of one path of like increasing complexity of thinking has kind of maybe we've just reached the end game of that in terms of where it will take us and we want to to bring in new new modes of of being together in the world so yeah i'll just yeah there's three things in here so i'll start with the easy one so stage theory is real in the sense of what is stage theory stage theory says that you go from A to B, and you can't be at B unless you've gone through A. It's all that's, that's the fundamental mechanism of stage theory, okay? So for example, of course, I have to be two feet tall before I'm three feet tall. It's not possible to be three feet tall before you're two feet tall. I mean, unless someone breaks your legs, you know? So yes, that's a developmental stage theory of growth. Obviously, you have to be able to have system, you think in terms of systems in order to think in terms of systems of systems. That's obvious. I have to be able to run before I can play baseball. That's obvious. Okay. So stage theory itself is trivial. Because some things just by definition depend on other things. Okay. So the fact that you can show that there's systemic thinking always before someone gets to metasystemic thinking is not that interesting. It's just trivial. Okay. And, but, but the way they talk about it is like, oh, these are earlier and these are later. And like, like it's, it's trivial. So that's one, you got to, pin that into your mind when you're thinking of developmental stage theories. Then you have to ask, is everything they claim associated that way? Do you have to be this before you're collaborative? I would say no. I just gave you an argument that I think collaborative is later in our society because it's conditioned out of us early on and for a long period of time. I don't remember being collaborative in college. I remember being forced to be collaborative in college because in biochemistry class, in our lab, we had to do our lab uh, task, which was six months long with a partner. And my partner took my work, he didn't do any work, he was like a hockey jock, and he gave it to his friends in the fraternity. And the reason why I know is because I had transposed the numbers on two of the flasks, and all the work was correct, and the teacher knew 
that the only thing that was a mistake was I had transposed. When I was talking about A, I was meaning B. And five people had the same mistake, which meant me, my lab partner, and the three people, and the well, four people, the other two people he gave the, la the, the results to, we were outed as cheaters, right? So that was collaboration in my experience in college. Um, and it was horrible because I stood there with those four assholes and he said, unless, unless one of you confesses, you're all gonna get an F. And I had no way, I got an F, okay? So this is- So they, he, no one confessed. No. Like, they didn't confess. Up. No one confessed. And whether the, whether the teacher probably knew, but he couldn't play that game either. So, so the point is, is that, that what the secret message in college education was not collaborative. I remember this in my biochem class, my, um, later on the next year, we stood in front, he, we were all in pre-med and the t instructor said, the way we grade this class, the, the class was you would take a, a theoretical scientific paper and you would read it. And then you'd have to get up in front of class and defend it as if it were yours. And he said, the way we're going to grade this class is you're going to be graded by your fellow students. So be careful. If you beat them up too much when they're defending their thing, then they're going to grade you low. So it was an exercise in how, the how competitive and unfair the scientific community was. So what I'm saying is that we don't teach collaboration even when I was a postdoc, all we did was fight over where the money was going to go. Okay. Even though it was a collaboration in, in the, in the lab. Right. So what we have to understand is that saying that collaboration comes late because it's dependent upon all these other things is highly suspect under the conditions in our modern society. And you could, that's the only one I remember. There's millions of them. There's millions of things that are highly suspect uh, under the conditions of our society. So that's the domain of stage theory. It's it's I hope I've explained it quite simple. If you still want to do stage theory, fine. But these are the skeletons in your closet. OK, and now complexity. So complexity is another thing at high on the stage theory, uh, stage theory thing. And I'm actually having this conversation with the Respond Network about whether wisdom is highly complex in terms of developmental stage theory. All right. So um, this is also a confusion. And you know, when Dave talks about rewilding Agile or Nora Bateson, what we're trying to say is the kind of complexity you're talking about there is not the living complexity of natural systems. So we have to be very careful what we mean by complexity. So Arnie Nass, who coined the term deep ecology and I guess the movement, uh, he said, nature is elegantly complex. 
But when you go out in nature, do you get like your prefrontal cortex has got systems upon systems and tracking like, well, no, that's not what his, his point was like, that's what elegant complexity feels like. And I don't think that that's what they're measuring. I mean, if you look at Lectica, they, they ask you to answer a question of to to argue why you would do something in a certain situation and they're looking for how much complexity systems within systems that you see and all this interdependency and this is kind of a cognitive complexity right this is a cognitive capacity but that's not the kind of complexity that that we see is required in the world it's it's um, so we have to be careful because it's clear they're not talking about complexity is a different word. So, you know, Dave likes to say his favorite thing is to quote the, the cartoon movie uh, animated movie frozen in real complex systems. They can't they're not knowable. So any map you have is just a construct in your mind. They're not useful. And what people fail to do is just come to terms with that. So they just try to make things more complex. And then they try to get AI to track it and on and on and on because they can't come to terms with the fact that complexity is best handled by lived action moment to moment in the context, your local context. So Dave likes to say, the only thing I can do is the next right thing. So these two people are miles away from saying the same thing. Now, what kind of mind, what, what do you think happens to the mind of a person that's only interested in looking for the next right thing? It's not a busy mind. It's a sensory, perceptual, empathic, embedded, aware, intimate way of being. And it's not a busy mind filled with data and information. So, so they're, they're talking about two different human experiences. They're, they're not even in the same ballpark. And now whether you believe one version or the other is a question, uh, you know, our, we could discuss that in the different domains, but we first can't mush those two questions together. They're not talking about the same thing. So Nora and Dave and I, I mean, I'm trying to not take sides here. So I'm using Nora and Dave. Uh, sorry, Nora and Dave, I tend to agree with you. They would say, you know, the ind way indigenous people are, are in certain parts of the world they're living complexity, you know, I, I remember my friend talking to me about these people that she knows this community in New Zealand, she says, they garden, but they don't have like rows of things. They, they amend the forest, so they can forage. So they're, they, they're supporting foraging in their local community. So they just go out and they just 
pick things to eat. I don't know if they hunt and fish. So this way of being is not hyper complex or hyper modern, but to be that way requires knowing what's the rest, right, next best thing, requires being sensitive to subtle feedback cues and context and understand. Now, it comes with deep interiority because it comes with the felt sense that today, you know, I said there's the birds are starting to sing in in before dawn now. I remember when I first felt that I had this feeling that it's spring. It, the feeling, the understanding that it was already spring came up before I realized, oh, that's because I hear the birds singing. So there is a tremendous capacity in your interiority to enter into complexity, to be with natural systems, to be with the complexity of the living world and the life world, and that arises in your interiority. But it's not an interior that worries about like my mommy and my daddy and what this person thinks about me and whether I'm liked. And now I have to get over being liked because first I established that I want to be liked. That's in my interior. And now I have to, through interior work, get over that I want to be liked and, and on and on and on. That's not what I would call the fundamental purpose of one's interior. And it's, 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 just like many modern systems have colonized the life force, the postmodern interior over psychology and narcissistic psychologizing of themselves has colonized our interiors. Um, so um, these are strong points. I would, you know, I very strongly uh, trying to be declarative because I think these, this is really the cusp of what is next. And people need to realize that, you know, any theories that are over, you know, uh, that the time has come. We've got the, the, the argument, the debate, um, the sparks are flying. It's all out in the open now. Um, it's time to like reboot. And I think um, some of these criticism ho hopefully can really reboot what we're doing as as a species. Um, yeah, I said enough. Yeah, really beautiful. That certainly speaks into why I'm here in this dialogue with you. And um, it has me wonder about you know, because because one question I had was then, oh, you know, like, is it is there any is there a certain sensibility that we can cultivate? You know, this interiority, this this deep uh, the sense sensitivity that you describe, this contextual awareness that we can cultivate. Is that something we can consciously engage in? Or you know, like um, sometimes when I hear Dave, you know, it's like it almost feels like, yeah, what's the point in any kind of coaching or interior development? You know, it's just like be in the world, and that's where stuff's happening. And and maybe I'm, you know, maybe this points to like that tendency to 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 create that dichotomy. And and so I'm hearing in you like um a certain kind of like move out of a modern mind you know as well like the rational mind which is 
discriminating, uh, like uh, prioritizing things um, and, you know, maybe oriented towards control, uh, knowing everything, you know. And I, I guess like the question that comes up is then, yeah, like, do you feel there's a value in in some kind of cultivating some kind of sensibility? And and this question I have, you know, as I as I'm reading Stuart Kaufman, as I'm listening to Dave, is like, and and I see you speaking about in your work is like, so so. And again, I think it needs a bit of a preamble for me to tee this question up. It's like maybe like in my own coaching, at one point it was structural. I had like a certain arrogance. Oh, I can assess you and maybe sort of help you get to where you want to go. But I also think, you know, so I'm overlaying a kind of prescriptive map and it creates this kind of tension in the coaching, you know, like it's tight, we're efforting. And then once I started, you know, one of my mentors is Steve March, you know, so mm -hmm. uh, it's a whole different sensibility, you know, I'm, I've got no change agenda for you. I'm, I'm holding a certain kind of space, which then allows for your, your organic unfolding to take place. You know, it's like, we're just being where we are right now, you know, and attuning to where we are. And then the kind of, you know, the next thing will begin to unfold. And there's a kind of, it seems like there's a kind of intelligence inside of that. It's not just random, you know, it's, it, it and so this is my question for you is like, uh, is there a value in cultivating a certain kind of interior, you know, uh, attunement to this way of being you're describing consciously and and then what guides what guides that unfolding you know like um because you know Stuart Kaufman says like well we can't know and Dave Snowden we can't know what's going to emerge next you can't possibly know but there isn't there something guiding that selection does this get into you know um you know a kind of eros in the in the cosmos or something like anyway stop there yeah there, there is, there's a natural intelligence of the universe, right? I mean, um, how did we learn to speak? We, did, we don't know how we learned to speak. We don't know how we learned afterwards. We don't know how people learn to speak anthropologically, but it's something we learned how to do. And so we didn't use planning or, or knowledge or control, but this is something we learn how to do. And so there's many things. Uh, one of the great privileges about being humans is to be surprised that there are processes like this in our experience, that there's processes of um, what John Vakey would call um, reciprocal opening. We don't know how to do it. We don't have a manual. Uh, we don't after, but it seems to be something we can learn how to do. And the phrase captures captures that experience. And so that is certainly um, it's almost like if you can teach it. It's not, it's not what needs to be done. Um, so, but you notice, uh, my question for you is, is, I would say what's important for us is to have a critical reflexive attitude. And that is when you, because you've said, this is your experience, when I don't, when I don't 
hypothesize where the person has to go, that something else is happening. My question to you is, how do you know that? Well, you know it because it's a feeling, right? It's a feeling. And every time that feeling, as you're working with a new client, ah, that's an evaluative process. That feeling evaluates this in this direction. Oh, no, a little less of that feeling. Oh, a little more of that feeling, right? This is the function of your interior, is to sense. It's a sensorium. And it's evaluating, right? You see the difference between that? You're evaluating external to internal, external to internal, world to self. That's much different than spending all my time evaluating my interior by theories of my interior. It's a hugely different thing, hugely different. And so for me, one of the things that's very important is uh, to make this distinction. There's the kind of mind we have, and then there's the nature of mind. There's a kind of interior we have, or psyche, and then there's the nature of psyche. And what we need to be careful is that we don't take the theories that explain the kind of minds we have as a description of the nature of mind. And then we can say, is the kind of mind we have really doing, serving us well? I don't think so. So what, so what is the kind of mind we might want to have? Is the kind of psyche we have one, one out of every 16 children under the age of 20 in the United States is diagnosed with a severe mental in, uh, illness. And they're doing interior work and self-reflecting and deconstructing themselves and doing parts work and they're going to the psychiatrist and no, the kind of interiors we have is probably not the nature of interior, what it what it's gifted us to be. And so these systems are tracking the kinds of psyches we have and the kinds of minds we have and thinking, oh, that's the trajectory of human nature. No, it's, what is the nature of mind? What is the nature of the psyche? I can give you definitions for this. This is what, how we work in the pop-up school. And when you ask yourself that question, it comes, there's a deep continuity between animal nature, right? So animals can simulate the environment in their minds we can simulate the environment in our minds and we can simulate other things in our minds that's the nature of mind it's the simulator but it comes directly from the animals that's why it's the nature of mind and then we can go on to the nature of the interior but um so we can have a cogent robust theory of the nature of mind and the nature of psyche by by describing the genealogy of uh, the life force, which is com- complete, completely continuous, all the way down to if you watch Michael Levin's work, uh, he's shown that we can learn. Uh, I mean, the whole idea of memory and intelligence is being rewritten today. 
Um, it's not about the wiring in your brain. It's about the cytoplasm in the cells that constitute the cells in your organism. All of this is being rewired, reworked, reconceptualized. Developmental stage theorists, if you want to be the top of coaching, you have to get on board with cutting edge neuroscience, cutting edge um, theory of the genealogy of the mind. And this is a whole new way of bringing forth human potential. Everything else I think is now just lost in the weeds. It's not worth a person's career. So amazing, amazing. So um, in a way, um, I want to ask you about this curriculum uh, that we might have, we're being invited into that brings forth our potential. Um, I want to ask you also about the neuroscientists you think are worth, I think you just na named one, but um, just a quick little aside, my friend uh, told me about a study he read, I think it's in the Netherlands where I live, where they had all these children that had been diagnosed with autism and uh, which is basically like classified as not well-behaved, you know, in inverted commas. So they put them all together in this, um program uh they did two groups one where they put them and they had like the best therapists and uh you know learning sessions and they really tried to work with this and uh, uh the other control group they just uh put them into uh mixed them in with another um you know um group of children who weren't diagnosed in this way and the control the, the group that was put with the therapists and they got worse and the other group uh, got better and, th and they deduced that actually, yeah, we can impose upon uh, all these um, interventions, but actually what was the most powerful learning that was taking place was the children from each other in these micro moments of playing together. And that was just, so they were kind of compounding each other's behavior and um, I don't know, just wanted to share that. Maybe it relates to what we're talking about. It, but. it totally relates. So this is the pickle we're in, right? There's numerous studies, Jack Pansep, uh, Diana Fascia, that whole group of people. Um, there's so much evidence that playtime, roughhouse play, playtime, is essential for making healthy children. We know this. We know this like we know that an apple will fall to the earth when it leaves the tree. This is very well established, okay? So let's say I'm, I'm a coach and I'm an organizational consultant and I'm working with the principal of a school. And I'm talking about regulations and COVID and masks and how we could, be more complex, be balancing the opinions and the multiple perspectives. None of that matters if the kids aren't playing. It's all a fucking illusion. Excuse my friends, but that's the truth. That's why like, like, it's enough already. You should ask yourself the question, how can I get this guy to let those kids play? That would be 1,000% more important than everything you're doing as an organizational coach. And then the, the principal has a problem with the dean. And this, and this is just all nonsense. It's all mm -hmm. nonsense. 
it doesn't solve the critical inflection points of our age. And the coaches don't help because they get people keep talking. Like it's just, it's just, it's just like having a food fight on the Titanic. And so then let's bring that in as well. So, because I, you know, I've heard Zach Stein say this Dave, as well. I'm worse than Dave today. No, no, but you know, this is, well, I, I like it. I'm enjoying it. I think because this relates to, again, what I've heard Zach Stein say about like, oh, the, uh, all the developmentalists and the coaches and consultants, you know, no one's ever going to take them that seriously in the main political world, you know, because they're, you know, uh, and then you said earlier, like, I think, um, uh, I wrote it down somewhere, but like, um, is is the is the in are the interventions actually making people more effective in the world or not? I think this is one of Dave's Dave's critiques as well. So I guess like the what I want to come back to then is is one question is like how how could we hold what coaching and consulting is uh, that would that would avoid this kind of like you know um, these flaws that you're pointing out and 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 also. Um, what is the you know bringing out the bringing forth human flourishing the best in humans like what is that curriculum you think like you're saying neuroscience like you, I think you mentioned Diana Fosha, uh AEDP I think is the therapy yeah, that I Jack, love her work yeah, yeah. And Jack Panks up PNK, yeah. he's the the his work is the neuroscience is on affect I think yeah exactly yeah. Um, so what? So maybe what we'll do is we'll take the the, the one I want to come back to first, and then we'll hold that one about consult, consulting and coaching. But yeah, what what is the the curriculum or the you know the? I'm even careful about the way I name this because you know there's a certain modern modernist kind of uh, way of co-opting things that I think then makes it into a kind of product or a you know it disconnects it from the immersion in the natural world, in the system and, and kind of, you know, uh, atomizes it in some way. But what, what is the curriculum you feel like you've named this, like deep uh, be, being part of nature, being in our bodies, being in nature, uh, sensitizing ourselves, contextualizing ourselves. Yeah. What do you feel that is possible really as a new, you know, as a new way of being other than the complexification of mind? I think that um, one of the ways in which coaching is probably going there anyway, like you mentioned Steve Marsh, but uh, one of the ways in which it could make this journey, I mean, there's two different ways. If you know Ricardo Semler of uh, Maverick, you know, he did, he was in the position of being able to make wild experiments with his company because he had enough money. He didn't much like running a business anyways. So he had the privilege of doing things like, oh, don't come into work and self-organize. And, and, but of course, at the end of his career, uh, at the end of his, you know, then he became more of a speaker. I'm not, I'm not sure what he's doing now, but he was, he was, he would say that all my ideas are not possible because of, uh, he uses a term similar to Dave, like the anthro complexity of humans. Like you can't, 
you can't reboot the human system and start over. So what did he do? He started his own school in Brazil because for him, it was like, let's start a school with new rules. The children make up of their own rules. As, as, as the system gets too chaotic, they come up with new rules. And so that is really the way to do it, but we can't reboot the entire planet. Right. So the question is, what kind of journey can coaches make? And this now we're talking to your actual audience and not to philosophers like me. Um, and so what kind of journey can people make away from developmental stage theories or some of these other things? OK, so one of the things they can one of the steps on the journey, and it's not a stage thing, there's just Today you learn how to use a screwdriver, tomorrow you learn this, and then you see how the screwdriver and this thing work together. So there's they don't come in they don't come in stages, but they're constellate. So one thing helps improve the other, which help improve the other. So they are related, but not in a linear way. So one of the things is for people to I've been saying this for a long time, is to release the complexity. Like, what is actually happening here? What is actually in play? What is at, what actually matters to you? What is actually um, you, you're trying to get at? What, or you can drop it into like, what we do in my work is we take the six affects, there's a seventh one lost and that might be in play, but um, you know, you can, you, you, what is actually the affect that you're experiencing and, and you can start to, and the point is the journey, the point of the journey is that you try to work from first principles at the lowest level of complexity as possible because then everything else falls into place and so for example there's this great little short video called a hundred thousand beating hearts which i always show my students and it's this guy who had a feedlot cattle ranching business that he inherited from his father and after his father died he started to work in more and more uh, biodynamic ways. So first, he, he just wanted to get off the pesticides and the antibiotics. And then little by little, he ended up transforming his whole farm. And he would say, you know, now all I do is make sure the soil is healthy. And the soil then grows the grass that grows the cattle, and he rotates sheep there's a hundred thousand living animals on his farm now and he noticed how the sheep would control the pest from the cattle and the uh the chickens controlled the ticks and this controlled that and this fed that and then the the um, eagles came back to the area because he had a microclimate that was healthy now get this and now he employs like 250 people that used to be a ghost town so he said by improving the soil i grew a community okay this is the true understanding of complexity most people of your coaches would nod their heads and say yes this is complexity 
but they don't take initiative to work like that, to take that journey, to take that seriously. You know, Bob Keegan said to me, the most important thing children need from their parents, it outstrips everything, is unstructured time with them. And he said, I, and, and no end in a modern world, there's always an agenda. Parents don't have time to be alive. And hence, they cannot raise their children. So where is the maximum leverage? You need time in your day. I convince people you can get 10 hours, 12, 14 hours a week out of your schedule. Guarantee you can get 20. Guarantee you can get 40. But unless you have 40 hours, you'll never make progress. Not real progress. Because you're a living being. And without that bandwidth and without that relationship to time and space, you cannot actually make progress. It's the fundamental chain that's got you chained. So we need as coaches to be serious about where the actual problem lies. It's you, you, you can't escape the problem of not having time with your kids by sending them to more courses. It doesn't work that way. So if you want to talk about stage, there is a sense in which there are fundamental priors, which if they're not established, then everything is somewhat broken on, on top of that. So I did, let me get you, I totally get, I mean, first of all, I feel sad because I've got a three and a half year old daughter, you know, and actually I feel happy because of how much time I've been able to spend with her, especially during the lockdown or being in the house and stuff. But I also feel sad because, yeah, my my lifestyle, modern world isn't set up to spend lots of unstructured time with her. And also that can be tiring as hell, you know, like, you know, parent, you know. Um, we don't know how to either. So it is, right, it I was is about a, to say, that's is, probably it why. It is a learning journey. It's not like, like, when I first started opening time, it was just like my body just couldn't stand this, the the freedom of it. Like, it, it, like, yeah. And so there's a process. It, it, it's a real embodied process. But if we keep little by little noticing a little more, you know, I have friends, they say, I say this to them and they say, I don't know how to play with my child. I can't get my body, like I, I get on the floor and my body's like this. I can't make my body do what bodies do when they're just hanging out. This is a problem, yeah. right? And I get it, like, and, and you'll see kids, kids, you see them playing and then they get all performative. They can't make their bodies do what bodies do to play. Uh I mean, like I do, you know, I also know I'm thinking about it. I'm like, when I, there is a click, you know, when, when I really surrender into that time with my daughter and it's just magical, 
you know, and that struggle goes away, you know, and, but uh, what I'm realizing is, is, and this is brilliant. It's actually an insight I'm having now. It's like, it's when I'm caught in time in a sense, in a particular way where I'm like, okay, you know, I've got in an hour, I've got to be there. Um, we've got to do this and we need to, you know, and then, but I'm with my daughter and that there's a kind of pressure inside of all of that, that, okay, now I've got to use this amount of time between now and then I'm being with my daughter. We've got to do something, you know, as opposed to just being with her and, and just even like allowing her to lead, but actually often I'm leading too. And we're just in this play, this deep play together. Right. And that struggle then all drops away. And suddenly you'll find yourself out in the garden, looking at this bug on the, on the leaf, you know, in a, in a particular way. And it's like, Certainly, that there's a revelation in that moment. You know, you're you're really seeing that bug and being with it in a way that you haven't been for so long. You know, like since a child, since you were a child, and you you could just immerse yourself. And I'm, I think what I the question I have is, were you saying? I th- it sounded like you were saying there's a way. I know a way where you can um, find ten hours a week, or twelve, or fifteen, or forty. Were you saying? that I know you can tell us there's a way of finding that time or were you saying, no, you need to find that time. I was saying that as a coach, that would be something would be a process, but that if you could help someone find that time, everything else would come to them naturally. Everything else that they would walk into the office and they would see differently. They would, experience who they had been differently everything that's so hard to teach someone most of it would fall into place if you could teach them that you know i asked somebody asked me the other day at the end of a course like are there any practices that uh you recommend and i said do you ever look for four leaf clovers in the lawn and she laughed and she said yeah i said how do it make it you feel she said alive yeah. Yeah. And that, that speaks to me of the difference between, you know, uh, taking on a practice, you know, as part of my development uh, and then being in the world and being developed in in relationship to the world, you know, in, a, in a, like bid with the four leaf clover. Right. You know, which which from one perspective might not seem like, um, you know, a sophisticated practice in some way or a spiritual practice. And and so, you know, you talked about these first principles in a way like um, reducing complexity as being something we could do. And you said that, you Re- know, releasing, most, releasing, releasing, sorry, right. yeah, releasing yeah. It's complexity. It's not a reductive thing, yeah. Right, releasing complexity. Um, and you said most coaches don't follow that, you know, they're not, they're not. So could you talk more about how we could release complexity, you know, how we could um kind of tune into these first principles that you're naming sounds like time having time is a first principle in a sense i'm not sure if i'm getting that right but, yeah, yeah. but how could we how could we um you know kind of cultivate a sensibility towards first principles and uh you know how could coaches and because i'm sure a lot of coaches listening would feel feel drawn to that you know well I mean, there's many different ways, but if we, we we talk about this critically reflexive attitude. So if you notice, like you said, with your child and you see a bug 
And then there's like a, a state experience, like like space and time open up, and empathy comes together. There's a natural rhythm or, or looking for four-leaf clovers. And then you can notice when what breaks that spell, let's say. And then you could say to yourself, what is looking for four-leaf clovers like in my company? What is what is that? How could I do more of that and less like this in Dave's words? And one of the things that happens is these these things we're pointing to um, seem simple, um, but they're foundational and they are powerful. So I would say I would call these action protocols. So an action protocol of looking at four leaf clovers is a hunter gatherer type of thing. How do I make the workplace more like hunter gatherer? Uh, more like, um, you know, this is the kind of thing Ricardo Semler was, was working with. And that could be an interesting, um, that could be an interest, you could get an interesting insight into um, something. Uh, uh, some, you, you know, it's like a lot of the early agile um, reconfigurations of the, the workplace were like this, where people didn't get up, make their breakfast and run to work. They came in and they have all these cafeterias and they all making their own breakfast and because the conversation around breakfast is actually fruitful. It's actually working with the human system. Um, the biggest, of course, the biggest problem here is that um, there are competing issues in organizations because if you're in competition and in the marketplace or you have a lot of debt in your against your company, then you're going to feel like the answer is in another direction. And that is going to put you in a state of uh, cognitive dissonance because you're going to feel like the answer is in more efficiency. You know, um, I saw a video the other day. This woman was an Amazon delivery driver and they have all these caught, you know, these cameras and they know how many times you take your seatbelt off and whether you start before your seatbelt and if they catch you drinking coffee you get a demerit and you get all these demerits if you don't put your seatbelt on and this number of times you have to stop fully at the stop signs and the, the you know all the intelligence that elon musk created for self-driving cars is actually surveilling the drivers now and um um if you're there's a there's an, a very big ethical component to this because you're basically destroying human nature and making people mentally ill by um, by choosing these kinds of systems over what we know is healthy for people. So you know uh, we have such a fragmented society. I look here, this is gonna help me compete. And then I'm going to give $500 million to uh, the American Psychology Association to uh, develop drugs to help people be complete, you know, and I don't think 
let me say this. This is not a definition of leadership in the 21st century. So if you're a leadership coach and you're coaching people who are making this choice over that, they should be called out on it. Mm. And I think this points to also to these words, these kind of imaginaries, I think I've heard them called, like efficiency or um, progress, you know, development. We're talking about some of them now that point to who do we perceive ourselves to be in this world and then what is that affording, you know, what kind of, how is that constructing the way we behave? And and actually we're in, we're in a time now where these a lot of these are breaking down in a sense. We're seeing the inadequacy of them or the overly mechanical disconnected nature that they have from from nature in a sense and so um you know i this is something i felt coaching in the corporate world which i stopped doing because i felt this um tension between like the the individuals i'd worked with who would then go back into their organization you know that was just exerting such a pressure on them uh, to be a certain way and to to be efficient, to be successful in inverted commas. And, um, you know, they came in then to the coaching, then wanting, you know, like you got to, your job is to, uh, you know, in one session, unlock my super efficient, you know, uber confident success nature or something. I mean, I'm exaggerating and how like, how, um, how much of an, how this dissonance that felt with the the organic you know nature of how we unfold and uh how we unfold in ways which are you know unexpected and need that kind of you know uh kairos sense of time you know mm-hmm. um and the well-being connected to that you know rather than it being being something which is like pushed and forced so there's a kind of, I guess I'm showing there's a whole kind of like gestalt I'm starting to feel of of like a, a way, a different way of being that that we could be. Um, yeah, yeah. And what comes up as I share that. So I think that um, one of the other um, practices that coaching as a community can do is because I don't want to end up, you know, you get into these conversations and like you said, you get really sad. There's a lot of despair. You can't turn the tide of civilization around in a second. Um, you're still working too much. Your kid still has, a, you know, when she's 10, she'll be on social. Like there's so much momentum in the system already. And so, um, but I still believe that like you, every day you try to add more value in this direction and less value in that direction. And these are a thousand little choices. Like um, someone said to me, you know, why don't you, in my courses, and they said, why don't you have people register for the courses on Zoom? And then Zoom gives me, you know, goes right into my calendar and I know when to show up. And I'm like, no. I'm not running a school where that's too, that's, of course I can do it. But then it's just when, when you cancel a course, you have to cancel the Zoom. So on the one hand, it looks like more systemic, 
And believe me, I've run huge companies. I was the, you know, operations manager. My job was to completely systematize landscape construction. But those are the traps. It doesn't give me more time. It gives me less time. It makes me more of a, you know, I'm on the computer and working for the algorithms and all the fancy techniques that everyone has and I'm not teaching. And so I just said, no, I'm not doing it. You know, every week I post the links every month, the links are the same and it's pinned to the board. So very old fashioned, just go to the board. Like it's like school, it's a school. We want it to feel like a campus. You go and you look, oh, there's the class I have to go to, right? So a lot of it is just constantly retraining the system down the complexity spiral into like, um, you know, uh, Google makes you think, you know, every day Zoom's like, oh, we got calendar, we got this integration, we got, they're not integrative systems. They're, 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 they're distractions. They're sold as integrative, they're just distractions. The cell phone does not give you more time. It steals your time. We all know that. It, but it's sold like it makes it's a convenience. It is not a convenience. The cell phone does not work for you. You work for your cell phone. And every day, I think, I, I, you know, I should trade in this little Radiant 5G. I don't like it as much as my other cell phone. I'll show you what I like the best. I like this cell phone. It's a Nokia banana. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, the yeah. experience is beautiful. It does all the only thing it does. It, it makes calls. It doesn't text very well. You could text. It can't go on the internet. It's always telling me, you know, I can upgrade and upgrade and upgrade, and everything will be easier. But I, and, and I feel the pull. But it's not easier if I get a smarter phone, because then it will, you know, there'll be more games that run faster, and on and on and on and on, and so. All these, there's a, th a million different choice points in people's lives. And, um, and then you can ask yourself the question, why am I not able to do this choice point? And I'm, I, can't, yeah. I can't solve this up there if I can't even do this choice point here. So, um, um, but anyways, I was going to try to give some hope to coaches that mm. get off on cell phones. And that is... Like every other industry, we there's a kind of a race, and the race is with AI. And without a doubt, the coaching industry is going to be replaced by AI. And AI would just be chat GT, you know. And so th the reason why it can be displaced is because our, the our theories are standard easy and not complex so ai can can do it better than us right you have a theory you have you can go to klaus you can put in thing and at lectica and they'll give you your your rating it'll tell you what level of management you should have the whole thing everything you do is going to be taken over by ai mm. this is my uh conversation with mark fields who's creating AI-based education so that people can have cosmic brains. I'm like, why do you want to have people that have cosmic brains? AI is, will always be better at cosmic brains. The question is, 
and the and the opportunity in coaching is when the thing crashes when it gets completely um you know ai will eventually get recursive and be saying the same things can't get out of itself that's good news because ai can only compound all the information that's on the internet today the question is what kind of people do we want to be in 10 15 years what can we do better that ai can't do this is where coaches need to spend their time this is where everyone in every industry needs to spend their time because we've so systematized all our industries including coaching and standardized it that we define what is excellent in the industry by what machines can do well what can what can be replicated and so hmm. uh, maybe i'll just end up and then maybe we can ask some more questions but what i wished for coaches is that they would when we talk about reinventing the workplace what do i mean by that what i mean is that years ago if you were a doctor that career could make you a wise person because you were in service to families you gave birth to children you watched them grow maybe they went to school with your children you probably saw the death of some children and their grandchildren you sat with people who were grieving you, you this is like a coach right but a beautiful coach and this life this career could make you a wise person but the career of a doctor today does not make you a wise person you see people for 20 seconds and somebody else comes in you look at the internet you've prescribed some drugs you don't know anything about them i've seen these doctors treat my mom and so the question is how can we reinvent leadership positions and design them in such a way that they make the people wise yeah i mean i mean i'm curious how you think we can i mean in a way um this whole conversation might be about that as i'm thinking of the doctor of the past you know they they were they had time you know and they were in long relationships there was a certain intimacy or like uh, sensibility again that was cultivated through their repeated coming to these relationships and perhaps seeing the patterns that emerged and yeah there's and 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 i hear there's a superficiality in the modern doctor you know who's time pressured and um not perhaps um bringing a certain way of being to his present moment experience you know flipping straight to the internet to get that information and and applying it so um and i think you know i've been this conversation about ai and coaching is um on our minds a lot here coaches rising and um yeah yeah so um it it it's it, something i think that ai like you named that ai won't be able, it can't it can't like it's not 
able to be with experience in the way you described earlier, you know, like um, sensing into experience moment to moment. It's it's everything's based on the past, isn't it? It's it's kind of recursive. It's looking at the the all this knowledge we have, and then and then coming up with something from that. But it doesn't do well with novelty, does it? And I think there's a certain um, kind of like complexity and emergence and novelty that we're pointing to in this conversation today. You know, um, uh, a different conception of what the self is, an embedded self in the ecological part of nature, not not separate from nature, but actually uh, inside, inside of nature as a, 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 and so that's the advantage I think that humans can hold over AI. Although maybe AI might become, you know, who knows what, where, where, you know, I heard someone talking about, we, we privilege, you know, organicness over silicon based, you know, then maybe there'll be silicon based life forms, but, um, so yeah, what, what kinds of, um, capacities do you think coaches can train in a sense, but what, yeah, you know, you were kind of saying coaches can prepare themselves to become, you know, relevant, to remain relevant or to, to redesign what leadership, this is right. This is what you're saying. Yeah. Redesign what leadership is. That's something we can do too. So, yeah. So that's, that's one thing like. Um, I mean, I'm more of an organizational development person than a coach, but one of the things you can ask is how, how could we redesign careers such that they make people wise? Um, and, and I, I don't really have a theory of that except for, um, because actually I just thought of that example in an interview the other day, except for this, this feeling sense of how being a doctor used to be being wise. It was very contextual. You named a lot of it. It was intimate. It had this quality of what I call a voluntary obligation or a vow or an advocation. Um, um, the doctor of old um, knew some things but also understood that the journey of being a doctor gave him more uh, knowledge about people and disease than uh, what he started out with. Um, you know, doctors have the same problem because the medical institution has systematically standardized everything, then AI will, will say, oh, AI is better at it only because we dumb down what being a doctor is into something that AI is better at. AI is not going to sit with the person and understand something's off, something's wrong, something's not quite right. The person doesn't have the confidence in what they're saying or all these, you know, like we said, how do you know when you're working with your coach? It arises in your body, not in your mind. And, and so that's just one way to frame the question. How can I design the workplace such that the careers I offer can help you become wise? Um, that, that automatically implies a whole, a whole commitment. The other thing is, is to not get hoodwinked 
by what I call the malware. There's so much like, oh, this is progress. Chat GTP is progress. And it's just not true. It's, it's, it's bullshit. It's like, you have to understand what is, what is it doing? Uh, I can't remember who said it, but he, he's a, uh, an author and he's, he's a teacher. And he said, chat GP3 is not going, it's not ruining the college essay. He said, because what people require of a college essay now is that they just give you back exactly the information you put in. And that's all we've been asking. He told, he, he talked about how he got reprimanded teaching his course because the dean says, you know, you didn't have them click all the boxes when they, when they wrote their essay. Mm. He's like, so this is my argument over and over again. We've been slowly defining what intelligence is as what machines are good at. Hence, we think machines are more intelligent than us. This is a huge problem. We've been defining maybe even, you know, well, that's ego development is not so much like that. But um, and so one of the things about chat GTP or GPT, I have it. And, you know, I asked it about myself. It said I taught at Shoemaker College. And what it's doing is just associationist. It knows I, I garden and I do consciousness. So that makes them think of Shoemaker College. And it gave me this whole resume and the things <laughs> I've done. And I put my bio up on Twitter, right? I really liked it. And, and but one of the things, what it does is like, as a gardener, I've been gardening for 30 years. I did, you know, I did bio, I worked on a biodynamic farm for 15 years. I've been in the landscape construction industry for 30 years. And now that I have time and I'm really seriously gardening, um, I'm realizing that almost everything that I knew about gardening was wrong. And so, chat gtp is just going to give you what modern people know about gardening or what modern people think education is or what modern people this and and it's all wrong we're at the end of the line we've compounded our assumptions over and over again cognitively so much we've lost the thread of the meaning and chat gpt cannot get back to the thread of the meaning it just can regurgitate. So what I tell people is if you want to know something, go to chat GTP3. And what it tells you, you, you can just set it, put in, in this is wrong box. It must not be that. So you can learn from it by saying it must not be that. I'm serious. Just say it must not be that. Because all it's doing is giving you the, all this stuff we know how information has been compounded in an information society. It's one article talking another, citing another article, and all the errors just get compounded. So for me, that's what it's useful for. What it tells you, you already know something more about it because you know it must not be that. And that would be my uh, recommendation for how to work with AI at the stage it's in. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, I'm going to do that, by the way. I'm going to go and um, ask ChatGPT to like tell me about myself and see see what it says about me. That's really that's really fun, actually. Uh, I can see a whole meme start. You probably started it already. There's probably like a million Chat 
GPT resumes online, you know. Yeah, you know, we should just have chat GPT uh, up, keep updating your bio on LinkedIn and Twitter. Oh just let it do it automatically. Somebody should write an app and it just it just keeps on writing, <laughs> writing for you. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. I'm just I'm really appreciating our conversation, Bonnie. And um, I'm just wondering as we kind of come to a close, like, of course, I want people to know. I really encourage people to uh, go to the, the pop up school. And I will say that in the intro as well. You know, I, I don't get the chance to follow everything you're doing because yeah. there's, there's a lot of great content, but I really do immerse myself in it. Uh, and it's brilliant. So, but I guess I just want to ask like this whole conversation in a way has been an invitation for people. But is there, is there an invitation you'd like to make? Uh, uh, in a moment, I'll ask the, you to share about where we can find out about your work. But I mean, more in relationship to the, this whole, conversation today like as a almost like a closing yeah, invitation i would say the invitation is to pay attention to the honest voices in yourself you know that you have you have to be honest that i just don't have enough time for my child and and don't trivialize it because it seems not complex in this in this other way of talking about it but highlight it because it's more fundamental and it solves so many problems downstream um and and maybe just ask yourself if you're a coach i think it's a powerful question you know how can i design my career so that it makes me a wiser person and not a more systemically complex, not any of these other things, but like that example of the doctor, whatever that you know brings up for you. Maybe it's even a myth, myth but um, yeah, how, how, since we do spend so much time as careerists, that's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah, really powerful ontological opening. Yeah. It's a it's yeah. a question of ontological design. That's a that's a a yeah. new a new field. Yeah. That's a field that I r- really recommend coaches immerse themselves in. That for me has been yeah, uh brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant field to explore. Um thanks Bonnie. Um yeah, where can we find out you know what you're up to, your work and stuff? Yeah. Bonita Roy at substack.com and it it shows up as the pop-up school and I cross post to that. I have an organizational uh, um, website also. Um, it's a long-term project and it's kind of on hold. So just go to the Substack. Uh, there's quite a lot of content for free subscribers. And then if you want to enroll in the current program, we have a new module starting in, in a week from Saturday. Nice. Cool. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank you. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a a heads up again. If you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well. And I'll see you again next time.